God's Word in Luke 14, beginning in verse 1, says, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox, has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. If you could have your perfect dinner party, what would it be like? Would it be a fancy, relaxed meal with several courses on pristine and elegant china? Or would it be more relaxed, a table weighed down, not with dainty morsels, but rather hearty main and side dishes? Would, would be the mood of the evening? Would you have energetic and lively music? Or would it be relaxing classical tunes wafting around the room? Once you have the menu and atmosphere, then you have to decide who's going to come. Would it be a select few, or would it be all your friends and family there to join you? Your meals are an important part of every day and every society, and at times we get to have special meals. You might already be thinking of Thanksgiving or Christmas and salivating, or you might be thinking of Thanksgiving and Christmas and be nervous because you know it's special and you're like, ah, what am I going to make this year? Ah, what are we going to do? Meals are important not only for good food and times, but also for times of deep fellowship and sometimes deep conversations. You might think of Martin Luther's famous table in which students would crowd around and listen to him. And those were written down as table talk. Or you might move forward in history and think of Edith and Francis Schaeffer at Libri and over the dinner table having deep philosophical, theological conversations. Or you might think of the humble hospitality today of someone like Rosaria Butterfield who is blessed by meals and now blesses others with them. No matter what the situation, though, meals are an important part of life and a great opportunity to grow in relationships with others. However, we all know that sometimes meals don't go according to plan. The food didn't actually turn out the way you wanted. And the guests, they won't leave. Or they leave too quickly. Or... You or someone else said something and you're like, oh, why they have to bring that topic up? And there's awkward silences or anger. Well, at this meal, Jesus has come and 
It looks like a great meal, but you have to think that when it ended, that the hosts are saying to each other as they clean up, well, that didn't really go according to plan. Well, why would they say that? Well, we're going to see three, three things. First, there were awkward silences during this meal. Then, in verses 7 through 11, there was an observant rebuke. And lastly, in verses 12 through 14, Jesus gives an odd command. But first, there's these awkward silences. Here there's a Sabbath meal, and one of the leaders of the Pharisees invites Jesus over. That's rather interesting that Jesus is again eating with a Pharisee when we consider all of his interactions with them so far in Luke. In Luke chapter 5, 29 and 32, they grumble against Jesus because he eats with tax collectors and sinners. In the beginning of Luke chapter 6, they attack Jesus and his disciples because they're harvesting. They're picking grain off and rubbing it in their fingers. Wheat. Then right after that, they attack Jesus again because he healed a man of a withered hand on the Sabbath. In Luke 7, the Pharisees and religious leaders look down and scorn on Jesus because he allows a woman to wash his feet with her hair and her tears. But then it goes beyond that because in Luke 11, Jesus attacked them. He condemned them because he said, look, you look righteous externally, but internally you're full of greed and sin. And then he pronounced three woes upon them. He said they only focus on what's trivial while they ignore the monumental things of God's law. They long only for the praise of men. And while they think we're the path to God, Jesus said they're actually the path to destruction. And so then in Luke chapter 12, Jesus warned his disciples, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. In fact, he said they're a fruitless tree that if does not bear fruit soon, they will be cut down. And then Jesus Gave them more evidence because he healed another woman on the Sabbath in Luke 13. We saw they just got angry. And Jesus warned them, look, there's this narrow door of repentance unto me. And then he weeped over them, crying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And so he wants them to come, but they're not. Now, it's interesting. We've seen all this hostility between Jesus and the teachers. And yet, what does Jesus do when they invite him to another meal? He's willing to come. If Jesus was like me, he probably would have just written them off. I've already told them what they need to hear. I've told them once. I've told them a thousand times. I'm not going to go to another one of their meals. It's just going to be the same old thing. And yet, in his love, Jesus continues to reach out to those who hate him. And well, knowing all of this, cast a little bit of a suspicion of what's going on at this meal. Is this Pharisee really wanting to learn about Jesus? Is he curious or is there a trap, something going on? And we're kind of given a clue, though it's not a definitive clue, that it's more of this trap. Because if you notice in verse 1, in chapter 14, it says, They were watching him carefully. It seems to suggest that like in Luke chapter 20, it says, So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, but they might catch him in something he said. So it seems as though this meal was not in any sense a way to get to know Jesus and learn from him, but another attempt to try and get him to do or say something that they can then use to get rid of Jesus. This is even further suggested by, behold, a man with dropsy was there. Well, whoa, how did this guy get here? It seems as though they invite him in because they know Jesus is not going to be able to restrain himself in healing someone which should be a clue about Jesus, that he always wants to heal, should point them to, oh, this is who he says he is. 
but it makes them concerned. Now what's dropsy? It's a swelling of the limbs due to excess bodily fluid. Today it's probably called edema. And the excess fluid was painful, debilitating, and quite unattractive to look at. Well, upon seeing the man, Jesus asked those who are watching if it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not. It's interesting, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus basically asked them the same question. Now, while these people were probably not there, they probably had heard about this. And the fact that Jesus asked them again is showing that they aren't really bringing Jesus to listen and learn from him. If so, they wouldn't be bringing people to be healed with trickery. They would be bringing it with joy. We even see this by the fact that they don't say anything in response to Jesus' question. You know, if they were learning from Jesus, they would say, Of course, Jesus, of course you can heal on the Sabbath. That's the purpose of the law, to love. Yes, why do we even need to ask the question? You should heal the man right now. But they're too hard-hearted. And so they will withhold good just because it's the Sabbath. And yet this is showing that they neither understand the Sabbath or God himself. You see, they're stuck because if they say, yes, we should do this, then they basically have to say that our teachings, our traditions, our understanding of God is wrong. But they won't go there. It would take them being humbled. Well, Jesus then clearly takes hold of the man, heals him, and sends them away. And then Jesus responds. He makes the point that this was allowed by asking them, well, if your son or if your ox, he fell down a well, would you just leave him there? Well, sorry, son, it's the Sabbath. We'll get you in the morning. No, they would lower the bucket with the rope and say, hold on, we're going to pull you up. Jesus saying, look, here's this man. Who cares that it's the Sabbath? He's fallen into the well of life. Let's pull him out. Let's help him be recovered. But their traditions, they bind them. They blind them to having compassion. Again, though, they don't reply to Jesus. Their silence is deafening. You know, it's not only awkward, though it does create this awkward atmosphere in the middle, it's indicting. The silence pierces through their external veneer of piety and serving God to show that really they're serving themselves. They're not serving God's law, they're serving just their interpretation of it. And this is really important because as Theophilus, who this was written to, and then us, and then others who read this, and sometimes have to say, well, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, then how come when he came, the people who should have accepted him rejected him? You would suspect if they rejected him, they were the closest, they would have known. And yet we see over and over, it's not that Jesus rejected them, though he did, but that time and time again, he was offering love and saying, I want you to come to me. And yet clearly, they were driven by their interpretations of the law and their hard-heartedness. Over and over we see that though they're being called to Christ, they won't come. They reject Jesus because Jesus doesn't support their traditions. You know, they've really missed the entire point of why they were there. They were there to lead people to God, to teach people about God. But when God himself came, they rejected him. They loved themselves and their teachings about God more than God himself. Yet sadly, the Pharisees and religious leaders are what the Bible calls stiff-necked. 
They know where they should go, but they will not allow themselves to be pulled that way. Maybe you've had a pet or worked on a farm and you have an animal and you need to get it to go a certain way and it knows where it wants you to go and it locks up. And you're trying to pull and it won't go. And that's what the Bible's talking about. And we can live that way in the folly of being unwilling to be turned. This is vividly captured in Jack London's book, The Call of the Wild. And there he tells of this dog named Buck who was taken up to the Yukon Territory during the gold rush. And Buck is there and all of a sudden some new gold hunters come led by a man named Hal. And Hal and his crew buy Buck. And the only thing about Hal and his crew that's more intense than their excitement is their stupidity. And the only thing more intense than their stupidity is their stiff-necked nature. They know nothing about searching for gold. And it's a scene from the beginning to the end of their trip. Because they buy twice as many supplies and food and provisions than they need. So much that the dogs can't even budge the sled. Well, then finally, after much effort, the people who are all laughing at them let them know, you have too much. And then one blunder needs to the next. As they go on their trip, first they overfeed the dogs, and then they realize they're doing that, and then they basically starve the dogs. And they're going along over and over, and they won't listen to anyone until they get to the beginning of spring, and they come to this frozen river. And a local man there, John Thornton, tells them, you must stop. You, know, you can tell it's starting to melt, and I'm not sure you can cross this river. And how the leader in charge says, we've been told many times we can't do this, and we're here right now. We're going to cross that river. And so he starts to tell the dogs to get up and go, and they won't. And eventually Thornton has to save Buck and the Howland and crew get them to go. The rest of the dogs across the river. And as they get on, it cracks, breaks, and the river breaks free from winter, never to be found again. You know, they were determined. We know how to live. Who cares that we've made blunders all the way through? Nothing would soften their heart to go, we don't know what we're doing. We need help. And that led to their demise. And that's the problem here with the Pharisees. Their awkward silence should have been the warning that they were about to go out on thin ice. That they were about to go into something that would break and crack and lead to their destruction. And yet they would rather stiffen their neck and say, well, we're not going to turn. This is what we believe and we're holding to it. And their refusal to allow even a healing should have been the clue that something major was amiss. Well, what about me? What about you? When we are shown our error, do we stiffen our neck or our hearts and say, I'm not going to say I'm sorry. I'm not going to say I'm wrong. I'm going I'm to hold my ground. I'm going to win this argument. Or do we soften? Let the Spirit of God lead us to repentance and confession. Realize the error of our ways and be led to the truth, to turn and flee to our compassionate Savior who forgives us. Now you have to imagine at Jesus' meal here, the host, the hostess are looking at one another going, wow, this is awkward. Maybe we, hey, you got a good joke? Maybe we could lighten the mood and switch from appetizers to the main course and keep this thing going because this is getting a little awkward. So the host says, well, well hey, y'all hear that one about Chuck Norris? He killed two stones with one bird. <laughs> that's funny. And Jesus said, hold on. I have something else I want to say. I got a little story, parable for y'all. And so he says, let me 
tell you, I've noticed something. And we see next an observant rebuke. Verses 7 through 11. An observant rebuke. Because Jesus notices, look, as the people are coming into the meal, they're all kind of looking around, watching how soon people are breaking up from mingling, going to the table. And they're making a subtle and mad dash to the best seats. It's interesting. Jesus are coming. Jesus is coming, and what are they doing there? Watching him closely. But who is watching them? Jesus is the main watcher. You know, that's something that's true throughout life. Oftentimes people come to the Bible with hard questions, and they're asking hard things, and they actually find out that the Bible asks them harder and deeper questions. My friend, how do you come here today? Are you skeptical, having lots of questions about the Bible? Well, so then we're glad that you're here. We hope that you'll continue to come and that you'll ask us those hard questions. We definitely don't claim to have all the answers, but God, through His Word, has revealed the answers to the most important questions of life. However, as with these men, Jesus will turn the tables on you and ask you hard questions. He will ask you, Well, why should you be allowed into my presence, into heaven with an eternally holy God when you have sin? Sure, you're better than the next guy, but are you equal to perfection? He will ask you tough questions like, one day you're going to die. And five years after your death, who will even remember that you existed besides some family members? Is anything you're living for going to matter Five years after your life? Wow, whoa, Pastor, those are some tough questions. I kind of came to get a pickup this morning and get me through the week. And why are you asking these serious, tough questions? Yes, those are tough questions. And the point is that the Bible's questions of us, God's questions through the Bible, are much deeper, more penetrating than our questions of God. We are like grass, which withers and fades, but God and His Word abides forever. So are you living for what will last, or what will fade away? Well, these religious leaders, by their actions, they show they're just living for the grasses of life. They're living for the praises of men, and this isn't the first time Jesus has noted this. We saw this in Luke 11, where it said in verse 43, Jesus said to them, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seed in the synagogues and greeting in the marketplace. And Jesus is responding here to their subtle and not so subtle clamoring and angling for prominence and he responds to this by telling a parable he says when they go to a wedding or a feast they shouldn't first go sit in the seat of honor because if they do what's going to happen well the host might come and go well actually someone more important has come so you need to leave and go somewhere else and by that point what will have happened all the good seats will have been taken and you're going to end up all the way at the end and in shame You're going to have to walk past everyone, them seeing you being put lower. Rather, what Jesus says is you should go to the lowest place. And that way, if there's any movement of people, you're only coming up. If you're at the bottom, there's no place but up. And they will come, Jesus says, to a more honorable place. As I was reflecting and reading this over and over this week, two things struck me. You know, first, the amazing relevance of God's word. This is almost 2,000 years ago. 
And yet what Jesus says is still an issue today. And we may not be clamoring for a seat in a banquet hall, but we may be angling for the best parking spot in the lot. We do everything we can to talk and be with the powerful, the important, the cool, the socially high. You know, few, few people are clamoring to talk to the private or the lieutenant in the military, but they're all very happy to go up to the colonel or the general and talk to him, make sure they know who they are. Whether it's the biggest cookie or the most important person, we find ourselves drawing to get it, to get close to them. We like being able to say, oh yeah, I'm friends with them. In other words, 2,000 years of scientific and cultural progress hasn't changed us one bit. If anything, we're worse. Because as we push self-esteem, as we push living for yourself, we're getting more of this. The second thing that really struck me is, did you notice that Jesus appeals to our desire to be noticed? I don't know if you noticed that. He didn't say, look, what you shouldn't do is go to the top seat, rather just go to the lowest seat, period, end of sentence, end of discussion. He then says, go to the lowest seat because you might then be noticed. Jesus is appealing to the desire we have to be recognized. Now, I don't in any way think Jesus is calling us to be manipulative. However, he is calling us and making us realize there's nothing wrong with wanting to be rewarded. C.S. Lewis accurately describes Jesus' words here in The Seeking of Reward. He says, The New Testament has a lot to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and take up our cross in order to follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. He goes on and says, If we consider the unblushing promises of rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy has been offered to us. We are far too easily pleased, like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. You hear these Pharisees are longing for all these other humans to recognize them. And God's saying, what about being recognized by the one who has made all humans? In whose image you're made? You're living for something so much lower than you were made for. You know, this isn't something we attain or reach for, though. It's a reward. We're given. You know, it's as we humble ourselves that then we're lifted up. How do they get from the lowest seat? It's not because they're great. It's because the host invites them. It's his graciousness. However, in this, realize it's not wrong to want to be rewarded. You know, Jesus in his parable on the talent says he ends by saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Well, why? Because we were hardwired to want to hear that. To hear, you did a good job. There's nothing wrong with that. The question, though, is who am I ultimately looking for those rewards from? And at what time? And if I am properly recognized for the skills and talents that God's given me, do I then stick my chest up a little higher and, well, yes, that's correct. Let me tell you some other skills and talents I have. You haven't even scratched the surface. Or do we say, yes, God's been gracious. He gave me that. And I'm glad I'm able to use those skills and talents. Thus, Jesus concludes in verse 11, 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is a theme that runs throughout Scripture, that humiliation, lowering ourselves, leads to us being lifted up. Proverbs 29, 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. 1 Peter 5, 5-6 says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. In essence, Jesus is calling His followers not to be about self-promotion, but about promoting others. Yet if we're honest, we really love the business of self-promotion. We subtly and not so subtly let slip our awards, our achievements, our accomplishments. We put stickers on our cars to tell everyone how great our kids are. We post online what wonderful things we have done and our children have done. All the while, Proverbs 27.2 says, Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. But there's this sad irony that Jesus is saying, look, the more you self-promote yourself, the less you are actually promoting yourself. You're only being promoted for a short period of time. But if you humble yourself, you will be promoted, exalted forever. And when we promote and exalt something that is in ourselves, we are deriving ourselves of the greatest gift, God himself. Again, we already noted this, but what allowed these people at the feast to go up? It was the graciousness of the host. And yet we do strut around. Did you know I have VIP access? Oh yeah, that's a very important person. Very important. Not just IP. I got the VIP. That's me. And how did I get it? Oh yeah, it was given to me by someone else. But don't worry about how I got it. I am VIP. It's me. It doesn't matter. Who cares? What do I have that I have not received? And if you've received it, why do you boast as though you earned it yourself? Every good thing we have is a gift. So we shouldn't go around strutting. Again, this not only harms us, but it keeps us from God. Lewis again insightfully writes, As long as you're proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. You know, humility is when we almost lose thought of ourselves and our desire to serve God and others. It's seeking their good and not worrying about ourselves. And this is so foreign. Yet God is calling us to this humility because ultimately it's good for us. It's going to bless our life if we have this humility. One last quote by Lewis. He said, God wants you to know him. Wants you to give, he wants to give you himself. And he and you are two things of such a kind that if you really get into any kind of touch with him, you will in fact be humble. Feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all that silly nonsense about your own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy all your life. He is trying to make you humble in order to make this moment possible. 
trying to take off a lot of silly, ugly, fancy dress in which we've all got ourselves up and are strutting around like little idiots we are. Lewis goes on, I wish I'd got a little bit further with humility myself. If I had, I could probably tell you more about the relief, the comfort of taking the fancy dress off, getting rid of the false self with all its, look at me, and aren't I a good boy, and all its posing and posturing. To get even near it, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in the desert. Humility gives life. Life now and life eternally. And yet, our pride keeps saying, no, 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 that's not true. What's life? It's promoting yourself. It's me. Hey, look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Pride is not some minor, secondary sin. Once I've conquered my lust, once I've conquered greed, then I'll go, yeah, pride, I'll take care of that one day. Pride is the mortal enemy of your soul. Pride blinds you from God because in front of the blinders it puts two big pictures of yourself and says, look at you, that's what life is about. And so pride should be something we seek to put to death every second. And you know, may God give us that grace that, as Lewis says, helps us to see the idiotic strutting as we go around trying to show everyone how great we are. Well, Jesus goes on because he's going to say, look, this concern for humility, it doesn't only affect where you go at a meal. It actually affects who you invite to the meal. Now put yourself at this meal again. You can imagine the host going, oh boy, this thing. We had those awkward silences and then we tried to crack the ice and move on. And then he attacked all of our guests. I mean, that was weird, but look, let's just get the dessert out. We're done. Hold on. I have one thing I want to say to you, host, before you go get the dessert. Ooh, huh. Didn't make it. And Jesus now gives, lastly, an odd command. Verses 12 through 14. Here, Jesus is talking to these hosts. He's saying, look, when you have a feast, who should you invite? Let me tell you. Now, we need to pause and recognize here that Jesus is speaking about our habitual patterns. You should not draw from this that at Mother's Day, this upcoming year, you should go, ah, Mom might invite you, but you're a relative. And Jesus told me, no inviting relatives. No Mother's Day for you. That's not Jesus' point. He's talking about the habitual way that we like to do things and saying, look, we need to restructure our lives. Of course, we should have things like Mother's Day. Of course, if you live in a neighborhood that has rich people, you should invite them over. That's not his point. Rather, his point is to challenge us, why do we invite those we invite over? And Jesus commands them not to invite friends, brothers, relatives, or rich neighbors. And yet this is the exact group we would invite over. Imagine you sit down and you're like, all right, I want to have some people over Friday night. Well, you probably would have said friends, relatives, people of influence. And yet Jesus says, no, no, those shouldn't be the people on your list. Jesus says you shouldn't invite them because then you're going to invite you back over. And that's why Jesus' command is very odd. Doesn't he know we wanted to invite the people over who have the lake house? Because then we were hoping they'd invite us to the lake house? Well, yes, he knows that. And that's why he's saying don't invite them. Because you're not actually inviting them to love them. You're inviting them to use them. You're inviting them to serve yourself. You know, the wealthy, they should be loved because they're people made in God's image. 
not because they're wealthy. The poor, they should be loved because they're people made in God's image, not because of or in spite of their poverty. Yet we all know that Proverbs 19.4 is true. Wealth brings many friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friends. We all see in our own hearts and people around us the clamoring to be around the popular at school. Those who have the latest and the greatest, everyone wants to know them. But what about those who have nothing? What would they give me? Well, that's the point. Jesus is saying you shouldn't be asking what are they going to give me back. When we do these things for someone because of their wealth or influence, then we're not doing it for them. We're doing it for ourselves. It's not love freely given. It's an investment that we're making, hoping for a return. On contrast, Jesus says in verse 13, that rather than that normally expected group, they should invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Now, on one hand, this is speaking generically of the group of people who are in great need. And yet it also is specifically true that we should care for these types of people. In Esther, after God delivered them, and after they've been had the day of destruction removed or the day where they could go conquer their enemies, Mordecai sends a decree and says, we should celebrate these days. And then he says in chapter 9, 22 of Esther, they should also be days for sending gifts to the poor. That we should have this desire to give to those who are poor in any ways. You know, the West and culture is still deeply influenced, so deeply influenced by Christianity that we still expect this. Oh yeah, of course, we should give to the poor. Yet the only motivation for giving to those who can't give back is that's the type of God who is real and exists and who loves us that way. We often call this the spirit of... Christmas. I don't mean any offense by this, but we never call it the spirit of nature. Hey, I got the spirit of nature. I'm going to go give stuff to people. Nature doesn't give you that spirit. It's not called the spirit of Buddha. Hey, I'm not trying to be offensive to any other religion, but it's the spirit of Christmas because the God who would give himself for people who'd rebelled, that's the God who motivates us to go love others who have been unkind, who aren't going to benefit us any way to love them. Because it's the Spirit of Christ, the Son of God who came. That's what motivates us to do this. It's in our being overwhelmed of who God is that we can live this out. And then Jesus says in verse 14, the amazing truth is that Jesus will bless those who do this for you. That he will bless us if we live this type of life. That we'll be rewarded in the resurrection of the just. So where are you looking for reward? A return on your investment, so to speak. Again, it's not necessarily bad, but are you looking for it from people? Are you looking to God saying, God, I'm going to live a life that reflects you. And one day I know you'll reward me for that. And so whether I have influence here, whether I get invited to the popular parties now, That doesn't matter because I'm going to get invited to the best feast. And at that feast, you're going to move those who humbled themselves here up to the places of honor there. And this is so crucially important to realize because sometimes in your service of God here, you'll actually get hurt for it. You are not always rewarded on earth. 
know, many missionaries have gone to foreign countries to serve, to reach out, only to lose family members to diseases there. Many Christians have opened their homes to the broken and needy, only to find that those people make their homes broken and needy. You know, as we serve here on earth, we may not always see the reward. And yet Jesus promises there will be one at the resurrection of the just. And so he is calling us to love and serve this way because that's the way God treats us. And we get to extend that same amazing love to others. I don't know if you've ever read Henry Van Dyke's short story, The Mansion. And there's a man named John Waitman. He lived a very prudent and wise Christian life. He was a Christian businessman, very influential, very honorable, godly man. Always did what the Bible said, raised his family right. He had a lot of influence. He held leadership positions at the church, on the hospital board, on the college board, and various other important institutions in the city and state. Well, one night, Waitman falls asleep and he has a dream and in his dream he finds himself walking with other people up to the city of heaven and there the gatekeeper welcomes them in and the gatekeeper starts showing them all the mansions that have been prepared for them in heaven and the further they go the more Waitman gets excited because he sees the mansions that the poor country doctor gets that the widowed mother got that the woman who gave up her dreams of marriage to care for her invalid father got that the paralyzed woman received. And he's thinking, wow, if they got that mansion for that, consider what I'm going to get for all that I did for others. However, as the gatekeeper of heaven is leading them through, the mansions get smaller, little beautiful, but less and less, until finally they find themselves walking out of the city. And they keep going, and finally they see this kind of shabby building in the distance, and they finally get there, and the gatekeeper says to a very shocked Waitman, this is your mansion. Well, Waitman immediately was resentful and angry. Said, well, this is unfair. He was devoted. He was well known. And he should be getting something bigger. And the gatekeeper said, well, this is all the material that you sent us. Well, Waitman, now there was some mistake. There must be some other John Waitman. Because I'm the John Waitman who helps build a hospital wing. I personally funded the building of three small churches, a school. There's an endowment for college and on and on. And finally, the gatekeeper of heaven holds up his hand and says, wait, we're not all those carefully recorded on earth where they added to your credit and reputation and positions of power. Verily, you had your reward for them. Would you be paid twice? Waitman then in astonishment realizing how he'd done everything merely just to get paid back, says, well, then why am I even here? And the gatekeeper of heaven says, anyone who is here is only here by the mercy of the owner. You know, everyone comes here because of his mercy. It's never what we do. It's not something earned, but something given. Now, of course, that story is not an accurate depiction. No one will have a shack in heaven. But the story reveals the nature of so much of our service. That externally, like John Waitman, it could look like, wow, we are really serving God. But every gift he gave was carefully done, making sure the right people noticed, that the right positions were then given back to him. It was never about just serving God. It was always about, and what's going to come back to me? 
And Luke has given us a snapshot into one meal with Jesus. And it's not what we might have expected. And Jesus is not saying these things to be purposefully rude. He's not saying things to be obnoxious. He said all of those things because he loved those people at that meal. And he loves us. He wants us not only to enjoy the feast here, which he wants us to enjoy, but also the feast eternally. Yet he's warning us, look, the people who are at that feast are the people who aren't stiff-necked, but when they see their sin, they humble themselves. They come to me. They have compassionate hearts. The people who have been changed by me, they're humbled. They're no longer serving just so they can get for themselves, but they want to extend the same grace I've given to them to others. That we love because he first loved us. And so Jesus has given us this great picture, calling us to the truest and best life, the life of reflecting him in this world. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we need humility. We fight against it, and yet it's what will ultimately give us life here and eternally. Oh Lord, may we see you, because it's only as we see you that we see how foolish it is to boast in ourselves. Lord, may you be large in our thoughts, in our lives, in our homes. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.